From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 2005 may well have been the roughest year on record for New Orleans, but the Crescent City still knows how to celebrate. Christmas time in New Orleans, indeed the whole river delta of Louisiana, has its own special traditions, including this poem loved by Cajun blues guitarist Tad Benoit since he was a child. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, they don't a tank pass, not even a mouse. The children been nestled, good snug on the floor, and mom passed the pepper through the crack in the door. And New Orleans trumpeting coroner Frank Minyard tells us what Christmas time means for him. Well, I'm going to start playing my horn again. That's the main thing. It's Living on Earth's Christmas time special, Longing for Louisiana. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and welcome to our Christmas time special with our guests from New Orleans, the city that taught us how to party. Now, maybe Louisiana residents know how to have a good time because of their French heritage, steeped in good cooking and conviviality. Or perhaps it's because this city has survived such disasters as Hurricane Katrina and the killer flu epidemic of 1918 that it seems to have as its slogan, Laissez bon temps rouler, let the good times roll. For New Orleans, Christmas in the year of Katrina can be defined this way. A city where almost half the homes and businesses are without power and where more than 100,000 dwellings are uninhabitable, where only a quarter of the population has moved back, A city where so many have lost everything and where connections to friends and neighbors and relatives are stretched, sometimes broken, in a diaspora that touches every corner of America. A city where nearly half the residents suffer some sort of post-traumatic stress. But Louisianans are a hardy lot. They know how to survive. They beat the British at the Battle of New Orleans, and they are not going to let the floods keep them down. Take the New Orleans corner, Dr. Frank Minyard. He had to process more than a 1,000 bodies in the three months after Katrina, including people he knew. 2005 brought him the toughest Christmas ever, making it hard, he says, to turn to his passions like music and good food to lift his spirits. And that's why Susan Spicer, chef and owner of the restaurant Bayona, made sure she reopened in time for the holidays, even if it meant being separated from her husband and kids. She wanted to do her part to get the city back to normal again and serve the same holiday treats she's dished out since the early 1990s. Storyteller Angela Davis stuck it out in the city, too, and today she brings us a ghost story. Though she nearly got away without telling us that she rescued and housed almost 30 people in the days following the hurricane. But first we turn to Cajun blues guitarist Tab Benoit, who spent the aftermath of the hurricane playing benefits to raise money for Louisiana residents. His CD, Voice of the Wetlands, was presciently produced a year before Katrina to call attention to the plight of the vanishing buffer between the city and the sea. Welcome to Living on Earth, Tab. How you doing? Now, your hometown is Huma, yeah, home, Louisiana? Yeah, Huma, Louisiana, yeah. Uh, you are born there? Yeah, I've been there all my life. So uh, you get around with boats or bateau, whatever? And Well, you used to. <laughs> my grandparents used to catch a boat. They call it the school skiff, you know, and that's how they, that's how they got to school. I remember uh, when he was telling us about it, I, I guess I just had a picture in my mind, you know, and I asked him, was it yellow? <laughs> <laughs> Did it have the little stop signs on the side of it? <laughs> 
So um, tell me a bit about what life was like for you coming up. Uh, I want to hear, uh, you got kids, by the way? Yeah, one. When he or she gets a bit older, what's the story you're going to tell them from your, your childhood you want them to know? Well, <laughs> I hope I'll be able to show him, you know. Uh, we grew up on a bayou, first of all. We didn't grow up, like, in a neighborhood where you could walk to your your buddy's house. So to kind of get away from your parents and go explore your own, you know, your own life, we'd go back into the marsh and into the swamp and, and uh and learn a lot of things. I, I learned so much about life from being out there. You know, it uh, seems like every square foot there's something moving. I mean, it's it's alive and you feel it and, and it gets into you. I, I mean, that's where I learned so many things about myself and, and that's where I, I, you know, I get my inspiration from. So hopefully, you know, I'll be able to bring him out there and let him feel the same things because I think that's one thing where that we tend to get away from and we tend to believe that we as humans are the top of the food chain. But if you go out and stand in the middle of a swamp in the summertime without a weapon in your hand, guess what? You're not the top of the food chain anymore, you know? (laughs) Not all that long ago, I was walking back there without a weapon, and uh, I'd taken half a step right over a called-up snake, and uh, (laughs) a pretty good size one at that. And so I'm standing with one foot in the air, (laughs) hovering over, a water moccasin, you know, and I'm pretty far back in the woods in the swamp by myself. So there you are. Your leg is in the air. You decide you better not move. <laughs> and uh, what did the snake say to you? The snake said, hey, you know, don't worry, man. I ain't going to bite you. <laughs> You're okay. You're all right. You know, I don't smell any gunpowder. You ain't got a knife on you. So there you are, um, very much uh, of the Louisiana wetlands, uh and you decided to produce a CD. I think you call it Voice of the Wetlands. And you originally uh, produced this to raise money and raise awareness about the, the loss of wetlands in Louisiana. And what, on, on the CD, Dr. John is there and Big Chief Monk Boudreau. Uh, those are a few of the musicians who recorded the CD with you. Could you play something uh, off the CD for us? Oh, I sure could. This is, this is a Doug Kershaw song that uh, me and uh, Waylon Thibodeau plays uh, the fiddle on this on the album, a great song. Kind of a Louisiana, good old Louisiana standard, you know. Well, at birth, mom and papa called a little boy Ned, raised him on the banks of a river bed, a houseboat tied to a big tall tree, home for my mama and my papa and me. The clock strikes three, papa jumps to his feet. Already mama's cooking papa something to eat At half past papa he's ready to go He jumps in his piro going down the bayou Got the fishing line across the Louisiana River Gotta catch a big fish for us to eat Setting traps in the swamp catching anything he can Gotta make a living he's a Louisiana man Gotta make a living, he's a Louisiana man Muskrat high, hanging by a dozen Even got a lady making muskrat cousin Got a out trying in a hot, hot sun Tomorrow Papa's gonna turn him into money Where they call Mama Rita and my daddy Jack Little baby brother on the floor, that's Mac 
Brent and Lynn are the family twins. Big brother is on the bayou fishing. The river flows, Papa's great big boat. And that's how my Papa goes into town. Takes up every bit of night and day. To even reach the places where the people stay. Got a fishing line across the Louisiana River. Gotta catch a big fish for us to eat. Setting traps in the swamp, catching anything he can. Gotta make a living, he's a Louisiana man. Gotta make a living, he's a Louisiana man. Hey, that's all right. Thank you, man. And thank Doug Kershaw for that one. Now, what were the holidays like when you were growing up? Uh, how did you celebrate? We celebrate similar to, I guess, uh, other places in the country. Maybe the food's a little different, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, my favorite gumbo is that uh, a day after Christmas, you take the turkey and make gumbo with that with what's left over the turkey. That's, that's still the best gumbo around. And uh, I guess when you were a kid, there was a poem... Uh, that was uh, pretty common in households in Louisiana around Christmas time, the Cajun version of The Night Before Christmas? Yeah, I used to hear this a lot from my grandparents as a kid. It's been a while since I've heard it, but uh, I'll give it my best shot. T'was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, they don't a ting pass, not even a mouse. The children been nestled, good snug on the floor, and Mom passed the pepper through the crack in the door. Then mama in the fireplace done rolls up the ham, stir up the gumbo, and bake the yam. Then I threw the buyer, they got such a clatter, make sound like old Boudreaux done fall off his ladder. I run like a rabbit, I got to go to the door, trip over the dog, and fall on the floor. As I look out the door into the light of the moon, I think, man, you crazy, or I got old too soon, cause they're on the buyer. When I stretch my neck stiff, there's eight alligator, and they pull in a skiff, and little fat drover with a long pulling stick. I know right away, got to be old St. Nick. More faster and faster, the gators they came. He whistled and he hollered, and he called them by name. Hey, Gaston, hey, T-Boy, hey, Pierre, all say, G. Ninette, G. Suzette, Celeste, and Rene. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Make crawl, alligator, and be sure y'all don't fall. Like Taunt Flo's cat through the treetop he fly. When the big old hound dog come run himself by. Like up the porch, them old alligators climb. With the skiff full of tar and St. Nicholas behind. Then to the top of the porch roof. It sound like the hell when all them alligator done sot down their tail. Then down the chimney, I yell with a bam, and St. Nicholas fall, and he sit on the yam. Sacre, he exclaimed, my pants got a hole. I done sat myself on them red-hot coal. He got on his foots, and he jumped like a cat, out to the floor where he landed with a splat. He was dressed in muskrat from his head to his foot, and his clothes was all dirty with ashes and soot. A sack full of plating, he threw on his back. He looked like a burglar, and that's for a fact. His eyes, how they shine, his dimple, how merry. Well, maybe he drank the wine from the blackberry. 
His cheek was like a rose, his nose like a cherry. On second thought, maybe he'd lap up the sherry. With his snow-white chin whiskers and quivering belly, he shook when he laughed like them strawberry jelly. But a wink in his eye and a shook of his head make my confidence that I don't got to be scared. He don't do no talking. He goes straight to his work. He put playthings in the sock and he turned with a jerk. He put both his hands down top his head, cast an eye to the chimney, and then he done said, With all that fire and them burning hot flame, me ain't going back by the same way that I came. So he run out the door and he climbed to the roof. He ain't no fool him for he make one more goof. He jump in that skiff and crack his big whip and them gators move down and they don't make a slip. As I hear him shout loud, as a splashing he go. Merry Christmas to all, till I saw y'all some more. <laughs> oh, Tad Benoit, <laughs> that's amazing. The, the the Cajun version of the night before Christmas. I wonder if Clement Moore knew what he started with that poem. And <laughs> it sounds like a, a great tradition to have when you were a kid there uh, on the bayou. <laughs> we'll have more stories and music from Tad Benoit just ahead. And Chef Susan Spicer will cook up some holiday comfort food, New Orleans style. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and welcome to our Christmas time special, Louisiana Longing. Blues guitarist, Cajun blues guitarist, Tab Benoit is back with me now. How you doing, Tab? All right. So, Tab, when I think Cajun country, I think history, the story of the French-speaking people called Acadians who were forced out of Nova Scotia by the British and their journey to the Louisiana Bayou to join the French colony there. Um, tell me a bit about how Cajun culture got the blues. Well, first of all, if you go back and listen to traditional Cajun songs and uh, translate the lyrics, those are the saddest songs in the world. It seems like, you know, uh, all these songs are about somebody dies, and a lot of times it's like a kid or, you know, a guy's wife. And if you listen to the way that they're singing, I mean, the, the traditional Cajun voice, it's, a, it's like a cry, you know. It's like crying out. That's blues. Uh, it comes from the the feelings, the bad feelings that we have, and and trying to fight your way through it by using music. You know, everybody uh, kind of lists the things that we're losing right now by all this destruction in South Louisiana. But you know, nobody seems to be mentioning the music and the culture and the food. I mean, Lord, it, the only real ethnic American food is Cajun food. It was born right here. And, uh, you know, just the cultural things I, I find have been kind of pushed aside like they never existed, you know. I mean, this music went worldwide and changed the music of the world. I mean, how important is that, you know? Before you have to go, Tab, I wonder if you could play us another song. I sure could try. My sad he has left me for good. After I gave my love for so long She's out there with somebody new And I just can't sit here alone, no, no But it's so 
hard to drive with these tears in my eyes and it takes a long time to get to Baton Rouge and all I want is to hear Oh, Ray Neal, sing my song Lord, when a Cajun man gets the blues When I'm feeling the weight of the water Lord, I know that there's blues in the quarter If I could hold back my tears and make it there I'd be all right But I might need you, New Orleans Every night And I don't know where I'd be without you when you've been there for me all the while from Lafayette to Thibodeau to Lake Charles hey, from Cocodree to Ticayu the grand out now when I'm feeling the pain the bayou's calling my name and that's an offer that I can't refuse I say it's hard to miss you Louisiana Lord, when a Cajun man gets the blues I say it's hard to miss you Good old Louisiana Oh, when a Cajun man got the blues That was great. That was really just terrific. Thank you, man. Tab Benoit, that must be the song that you play when you want to bring the house down. I tell you, that's the place where I wrote that song, The House Is Down. You know, uh, I wrote that out, out, of, out of my camp, and uh, it's it's flattened and leveled by the title search from Hurricane Rita. So it, it's always meant a lot to me, you know, it's the, that song in particular, because I think it was just a matter of... Uh, you know, my heart speaking out as to how I felt about where I live and and uh, and where I come from, and trying to put all of it into perspective, uh, not just for everybody else, but for myself. You know, so it's a very special song to me, and and uh, it's actually uh, a hard one to sing right now. You know, and a hard one to play. It's not that uh, it's not that easy to jump into it, but it's more important than it's ever been. You know, and. Uh, it's just an example of the kind of things that we don't want to give up on and the things that we want to try to preserve and the things that we want to try to say and be honest about, you know. It's, it's basically getting your heart out there and uh, 
and being naked to the world and letting everybody see your true self and what you're about, you know. And songs have a way of doing that. Indeed. With me has been Cajun blues guitarist Tab Benoit. Tab, it's been really great having you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to talk to y'all, uh, and uh, I hope we get to do some more of these things, you know. <laughs> we make a good gumbo, make a good gumbo, with the love and touch, love and touch. From New Orleans, from New Orleans, way down to the gold, way down to the gold. We're going to take a small diversion now from music to food. Our guide to the cuisine of Louisiana is Chef Susan Spicer, and yes, that is her real name. By Thanksgiving after Katrina, she had reopened her French Quarter restaurant called Bayona, and she's here to tell us what she's cooking up for Christmas. Hi, Susan. Thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. Thanks. Hey, Susan, what happened to you and your restaurants there in New Orleans? Well, what happened was... uh the, the restaurants sustained very little damage because they were in the parts of New Orleans, um, you know, the French Quarter and the CBD that uh, really didn't get much flooding. But uh, my home and, and the home of uh, a, a number of other chefs, my partner at Herb Saint, uh, we lived in Lakeview, and so our homes were all flooded. I know about five or six chefs that lived in the same neighborhood that all lost their homes. When things are really rough like this, there's nothing quite like comfort food to make us feel good. So Exactly. You must have thought it was really important to get the restaurant going again. How long did it take you to, to get opened up uh, again, and, and, and how's that going? We opened up the, uh, the Friday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was kind of a symbolic time for me to be open because we've been open every year for Thanksgiving since we opened the restaurant in 1990. And I felt like even if we didn't have any customers, even if it was just, you know, family and employees, I was going to cook that darn turkey and serve it here. And as it turns out, we probably could have sold the restaurant out, you know, two or three times from the number of calls we got. Uh, because obviously there aren't a lot of places, <laughs> there weren't a lot of restaurants open for Thanksgiving. And we had, uh, the whole dining room was full of people that have been coming for years and years and years. And it was, it, for me, it was a, a, a very emotional, you know, good thing to, to get back open for that. And, you know, to cook the the suckling pig and the and the roast turkeys and my mother's stuffing and, you know, things like that. And my mother, of course, did come for Thanksgiving. What are you making at the, at the restaurant uh, at the holidays? I imagine you're making your famous stuffing. What else? Um, well, something that always says uh, holiday time in New Orleans to me is oysters. Everybody, you know, they're, they're, the weather is cool. They're usually peak season. And uh, so I like to do a lot of different things with oysters. I do a sautéed uh, oyster and spinach salad. But uh, right now we're doing sort of a oyster gratin with Italian sausage and uh, breadcrumbs with uh, Parmesan cheese and bechamel and spinach. Ooh, I'm having trouble. I think my mouth is already starting to water. <laughs> now you're down in your kitchen where you can make that wonderful oyster dish. Yep. I'm down here. I've got some oysters. I have uh, oysters in the shell. And now I've got one open, and I'm... That's me sucking the oyster out of the shell. <laughs> right down the hatch, huh? Mm-hmm. First, we're going to heat up the bechamel in a pot. You know, we're going to just take a little butter and flour and add some milk to it. 
cook it for a minute without getting any color on it and then uh, add your milk a little at a time so it stays nice and smooth. You want to bring it up to a boil because that's when it's going to really gonna get nice and thick and you can sort of tell, you can adjust the consistency at that point, but it has to come up to the boil. You can add cheese right to this or, or any kind of uh, different flavoring. We're going to put a little bit of the uh, Herb Saint or Perino, which is also kind of a, a traditional uh, flavoring with oysters. Uh, it's looking good. And a little uh, salt, pepper, and a, a grating of fresh nutmeg, too. All right, I'm ready for the next step. Okay. Next, we're heating up a little olive oil. And we're going to wilt our spinach. Just add your garlic and shallot for just a minute, and then throw in a good handful of that... That fresh spinach. Mm. And you're going to wilt it right down in the pan. You want to toss it and season it with just a little pinch of salt and pepper. So now we're going to take that spinach and we're just going to line our dish, make a nice little green cushion. Alright, now I'm laying down these beautiful oysters. I have uh, Italian sausage, which we've uh, poached. We, you know, we, we poach it, uh, take it out of the skin, and then kind of crumble it up. And then I'm going to drizzle the bechamel. And then I have these yummy, nice, moist breadcrumbs. The reason why I add the butter and the olive oil to the breadcrumbs is if you just put them on there dry, they sort of, you know, they're kind of like sawdust. They don't really have a very nice and they, they won't brown as well. And that is the finished product there, getting ready to go into the hot oven. Mmm, yes, how long does it stay in the oven now? Uh, well, that's, you know, since it's a fairly shallow little individual casserole dish, I would say five to seven minutes at about, uh, it's, it's at about 400 degrees. It's a pretty good combination. Oysters and spinach are, are a very traditional combination, um, and there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And actually, right now, the oysters are better than ever because the, the hurricane blew a lot of salt water um, into the oyster beds. The um, oysters are grown here in what they call brackish water, which is where the fresh water meets the, the salt water. And so, you know, sometimes, like if it's rained a lot, they can be... Um, I guess a little bland, but with the, the infusion of a lot of the salt water from the Gulf, they are just really delicious right now. So, Okay, I think our rattan is ready. All right, great. So, um, let you pull it out? Yep. Ooh, how soon can uh, it be tasted? <laughs> well, it depends on if you want to burn the roof of your mouth or not. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good if I do say so myself. <laughs> Susan Spicer is the chef of Bayona Restaurant in New Orleans. Thank you so much. And thank you, Steve, for visiting with me here at Bayona. Happy holidays. Same to you. Start with a cup of love and joy, along with a couple of sanitoys. Then add a pinch of peace on it, slowly start to stir. Go in a smile and a laugh or two, boil it down to
storyteller Angela Davis is my next guest. She calls herself the Yarn Spinner. And over the past two decades, she's been telling stories, mostly about New Orleans. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Angela. Glad to be here. Now, you're from New Orleans, and I understand you were there when Hurricane Katrina hit. What happened to you? Well, I watched Hurricane Katrina rage around a lot. I saw trees snapping like toothpicks and crashing into my neighbor's homes. I decided to wait out the storm because my daughter was trapped in New Orleans, and when I found out she wasn't leaving, I made a decision to stay behind because I knew I wouldn't be able to get back into the city once the hurricane was over. And uh, lucky for us, she's well, and I was able to go back into the city to retrieve her. Well, that's an awfully short version of the story. Come on, we're back. The wind is blowing. Things are slapping into your neighbors' houses. And what happens next? Oh, the chimney came ripping off the roof. I kept an eye on the water. It didn't flood in my neck of the woods, which is Mandeville, Louisiana. But uh, the water got pretty high closer to the lakefront, I understand. Homes were pretty devastated in my neighborhood due to the trees. And uh, once I got into the city, it took me about three hours to actually make the trek over there to retrieve my daughter. But each day following the storm, I was over in the city rescuing people. It was a, a harrowing experience. Rescuing people just because you had a car that would go? Yeah, I had a car and I was able to go in. We had about 27 people staying in my home at one time. We had no power. We had no uh, water. But I'll tell you, after I picked up my daughter the first day, we were coming back across the causeway between Kenner and Laplace, and there was a young woman carrying her gasoline can, and she was just walking out on this lonely stretch of the highway. And I said, I just pulled over and gave her a ride. And once she got in the car, she pretty much crumbled. She started to cry and tell me what had happened to her during the past three days while she was caught in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And I remember stopping her in the middle of this conversation. I said, look, sweetie, you're going to be okay. Just like I stopped to give you a ride, there's going to be someone at the gas station. And the gas station was 60 miles away in Sorrento by the way. There's going to be somebody at that gas station to give you a ride back. Now, the interesting thing was when we got to the gas station in Sorrento, not only did she find gas and a ride, but there was free food. There was a family out there from New Roads, Louisiana, and they were serving fresh food, hot jambalaya and bread and free water. And they were giving it out free just from the goodness and kindness of their heart. I went over to him and I I said, listen, How is it that you all are out here? I thought some church had put them up to doing this. And they said, well, we just wanted to do something for the people of New Orleans. And so they got in their kitchens, cooked up this food. And let me tell you, it was the best jambalaya I had ever had. Edna was able to bring plates of this food back to the people waiting for her in the car with the gas can. And she got her ride. And one of the things I told her, I said, listen, honey, there'll be somebody here for you every step of the way. And I want you to know I was listening to these words. It was as if somebody was talking to me while I was telling her this. And the thing that I felt about this is that, you know, if you're doing your part, whatever your small part is, like that family from New Roads, this world, you know, would be a wonderful place if everybody just does their small, wonderful part. Coming up, Angela Davis, the yarn spinner, is going to tell us an honest-to-goodness New Orleans ghost story. Also, the jazz-playing coroner of New Orleans will join us for some stories and music of New Orleans' Christmases past. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation 
online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and our Christmas time special, Louisiana Longing, continues with storyteller Angela Davis. Angela, it uh, seems to me that New Orleans celebrates just about everything, including death <laughs> and dying. Yes. Well, you know, there's a thin line between the living and the dead. And so we, we don't say that they're dead. They're just in another area that we can't see. That's why we celebrate it. So uh, please, Angela Davis, the yarn spinner, tell us a story that shows us how in New Orleans your vibrant musical culture blends death with rebirth. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you the story of a hot day in an old New Orleans cemetery, and it goes like this. Thank you for coming here. I jumped and looked up. A moment ago, I was the only living person in the whole cemetery. And now there was a man standing before me, dressed in a black three-piece suit, a black tie, and his skin was dark about the color of a plum. I didn't know what else to say to him, so I said, um, thank you, I'm collecting herbs. I heard a rumble in the distance, and I turned and looked behind me. An early summer thunderstorm, black and boiling, filled the horizon. Be raining in a little while. The gentleman limped with his cane among the groves over to the mausoleum. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a massive keychain, started fingering through those keys one by one. He stopped at an old skeleton key and inserted it in the gate. The lock slowly turned stiffly. And he pushed that gate open with his cane, and in the dim shadows I could see he was motioning for me to follow. Well, it didn't take much to motivate me. I heard another crack of thunder, and the next thing you know, I was right behind him. There were empty tombs on either side as we walked through. And at the end of the passageway, it looked like there was a nice altar at one time. Broken stained glass was all over the floor, and there were two benches for mourners. And we sat down on those benches, and there was a long silence. I looked down that passageway, and I could see the rain was falling heavy, coming in slanted sheets. Daylight was turning dark and greenish, just like it does for a hurricane hits. I said about as much, and we were quiet a while, listening to that storm raging outside. The sky grew darker. The winds were ripping and roaring ferociously outside our shelter. Well, he sat up straight and slapped his heavy hands on his thighs. Looks like we're going to be here for a while, doesn't it? And then he turned and looked me dead in the eyes. And I'll never forget that look as long as I live. He said, I hear you're a storyteller. You know any ghost stories? Why don't we pass the time telling ghost stories? This is the tale I told him at the seams. Everybody knows old Joe Johnson was a great comedian. He could make you laugh. Have you rolling on the floor with your sides aching and tears coming out of your eyes? Old and wise, he was a big old wide man with a grizzly beard, and he liked to play practical jokes on his four friends, Tina, John, Carl, and Lewis. They were talented youngsters. They climbed with him out of that trashy neighborhood of the city where they were born. Tina became a great singer. She sold gold and platinum records, and John, oh my, John was a writer, and he was a regular on the bestseller list. Carla? Ooh, Carla was a world-class 
actress, that girl won an Oscar. Lewis, like Joe, was a comedian. He had his own television show before launching himself head of his own entertainment network. They climbed up out of the hardness of the streets, polishing their languages and, and smoothing their ways, putting some distance between them and the city. But not old Joe, you see. He remained behind like a diamond in the rough with his old taste and his, his old speech and, and his old way of dressing. Despite his talent, Joe was always in a pile of mess or a heap of trouble. He went from one house to the other, one bankruptcy to another, one job to another. There was always something with that man. His friends watching, now they helped him out when they could, but they had to be mindful of their own careers. But you gotta keep in mind the way old Joe lived. See, he wasn't gonna be around forever. Matter of fact, he died. Now you have to know how many times he wrecked his car. See, the end just wasn't a surprise to nobody. They found him and his twisted remains of that car in a ditch. And his will asked that he be buried at St. Expedite with his full friends as pallbearers. Well, they decided to do it on a cool, rainy day. I remember just like it was yesterday. They brought him down to the crypt with his jazz band and big old crowds came down from the project. They were dancing to that New Orleans jazz and the thumping of that big bass drum. But that night after the funeral, they sat in a local restaurant in a private room reminiscing over wine, and they were talking about old Joe's practical jokes. See, he had some common ways, and ooh, the way he loved them poor people, the way he put it, their ways, their music, their lives. And someone who had an idea, a great idea, they said, let's make something good happen out of this. Why not make a song and donate the money to the poor in our own neighborhood? So what song could they sing? Now they thought about it, and the answer all came to them at the same time. Going at the seams, it's an old spiritual and it had been Joe's favorite whenever the bottom fell out on old Joe. Now the city might be a sleepy backwater, but it ain't dead. And in the middle of the night, Tina's agents called in some back old debts, and they went out and got this jazz band off of Bourbon Street. And as a final touch, Lewis stopped by the convenience store and got a bottle of cheap whiskey. Everything was set. Tina, John, Carl, and Lewis sat on this little platform in this recording studio surrounded by all these little microphones passing this whiskey bottle around and reminiscing. Now the engineers were in the glass booth playing with the dials. The jazz band, they were tired and were slumped around waiting for everything to get started. At that moment, the door opened and old Joe walked in. He was dressed in his black burial clothes and his shiny black shoes, a starch white shirt, black tie. That mortician had done a good job because you could hardly see where the stitches were from the accident. Whatever, Joe looked like his old self rocking from side to side and waving his arms and roaring in his deep voice. He reached for that bottle of whiskey. His four friends were petrified. They didn't know what to do. The jazz band waved and shook hands with him, patted him on the back, took out their instruments and got ready to play. One brought an extra chair and a mic for Joe who beamed back. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, guys, that's a good man. Give that man a drink. Joe grabbed the half-empty whiskey bottle, and he took himself a long swig. A dark liquid stain appeared about the waistline of his suit, and the room started to smell like whiskey. Tina, John, Carl, and Lewis, they didn't know what to do. Joe turned to that jazz band, and he said, Hit it, boys! He nodded to the engineers in the control booth, and an unreal voice said, Roll that tape. And Joe started to sing. At the seams, keep them from going 
at the seams. Mm. He looked at his four friends and motioned for them to join in. That old song took them. Joe laughed. Tina closed her eyes. Louis tapped his foot on the floor to keep time. And that jazz band just fell into the groove. They were rocking that place. John looked at Joe. He saw his whole body singing. Saw it doing a little coming apart, too. Carla looked over at Joe and she saw some stitches popping out around his ears. That dark liquid drizzled down Joe's ankles to the floor. That band just kept on playing. They never even noticed. Old Joe got out of that chair. He grabbed that whiskey bottle in his hands and he said, Y'all made it and I didn't. Now I come back to claim what's rightfully mine. Here's to success. All of a sudden there was a massive ripping sound that tore right through the center of Joe's body fell to the floor with a mighty thud. The song was a success. It sold millions of copies. The critics loved it. The jazz band said, oh, it sure was nice to have someone imitate an old drunk Joe to come out and help out with the session. Oh, yeah. Old Joe had finally hit the big time. I turned to look at the stranger, and he was nowhere to be found. I felt the sunlight shining on my face. Light poured in through a broken window, and I felt like I was just waking up from a long nap. I looked around. No sign of that stranger with the silver flask. I made my way back out into the cemetery. And the most amazing thing is this. There was no rain on the ground. There wasn't even any indication that there had been a thunderstorm. I left those herbs in that cemetery. And you know, I haven't been back since. And every now and then... I think back to that day, and I wonder, did I make it up? Oh, did it really happen? I guess I'll never know. Whoa, well, that's quite a ghost story. I'm not sure that I'm going to ever feel the same walking by a cemetery, especially one of those above-ground numbers there in New Orleans. And you think Joe's still out there? Absolutely. He's ready to hear another story. <laughs> <laughs> Angela Davis calls herself the Yarn Spinner. Thank you so much for taking this time with us, Angela. Thank you. I've had a lot of fun. Now, if New Orleans has more than its share of ghosts, the city's coroner, Frank Mignard, would have likely run into some of them. For the past 30 years, the trumpet-playing coroner, as he's called, has seen his share of tragedies in the city with one of the nation's worst murder rates, but... Nothing prepared him for the carnage of Hurricane Katrina. Over a 1,000 bodies were processed by his morgue in the aftermath of the storm. Um, Frank joins us now. Hey, Frank, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Now, uh, you were born and raised in New Orleans, and I understand you just moved back into your home in the French Quarter. What's it been like for the past few months? Well, I've been living up in St. Gabriel, where we were doing the processing of the remains in a FEMA trailer, I might add. You know, it's it, it's been okay. I mean, the living conditions were good, but uh, I can't say how, how happy I am. I'm very happy to be home again. I want to take you back now to the end of August. Katrina is coming. It hits. How soon did you know that things were going to be very different for you? Well, I rode the storm out across Lake Pontchartrain from the city. I have a small farm over there, like I do every hurricane. I go there in case my fences get down, you know, and my animals get out. And I was over there uh, Sunday night and Monday. Tuesday morning, the worst happened. My fences were down. My animals were out. 
But I left to come back to the city, to the office, coroner's office. That was a nightmare for me because the roads were all flooded. My truck drowned. I had to get out the truck, start walking in chest-high water. And then I started swimming, and I spent four and a half hours in the water on Canal Street, which is our main thoroughfare. And a boat picked me up when it got dark Monday afternoon and took me to the coroner's office. And that's when it dawned on me <laughs> that this was not an ordinary situation that we'd been through so many times before that we had a catastrophe here. And it was going to be a human catastrophe. And, of course, you know, we've lost a thousand bodies, a lot of people. You get to the office, what do you find? Well, the, the building, uh, no electricity, and uh, I had a few of my employees who rode out the storm there, and we stayed at the office four days before we were rescued, a helicopter. That time was very tough. There was no food, no water, <laughs> of course, no, no electricity, and we were surviving the little water we could get from other people in the building and uh, some of the food. It was a tough four days, you know, just being stranded and knowing that there was going to be lots of people dying. And uh, we were worried about ourselves, really, whether we were going to die. And then you start hallucinating about food. What did you dream about for food or hallucinate? My food dream at the time was just cornflakes and milk, <laughs> just anything, you know. You know, by the way, you're a coroner and a jazz trumpeter, so give us some insight into this New Orleans tradition of jazz music at the funeral procession and everything. Well, it started a long, long time ago. I think it has African origins, and the whole idea is to have a group of guys get together who want to play at a funeral of someone who they think is worthwhile. You cannot purchase a jazz funeral. You can't buy it. This when somebody you know, who has done a great service to mankind and lived in this city and promoted this city. When he passes on, the, uh, they get together and they play. And what they do is they use an old gospel number from the Protestant churches, the uh, old rugged cross, what a friend we have in Jesus, numbers like that. And they play behind the hearse, walk very slowly and very somber. And then at some point when they get to the graveyard, Somebody in the band says, cut him loose. So we cut him loose, and with that, he severs all of his worldly ties, and he's gone on to a more grand and glorious reward that he could ever have here on earth. And we turn around and take that same old gospel number, and we jazz it up. And it really ignites the people, and everybody starts dancing. So now we are celebrating our dearly departed friend's life. I mean, I was raised doing that. My family all did that. And when my mother died two years ago, you know, we had one for her. Now, how, much, how often are you getting together with your band to play? Well, we don't know where they are. I use mostly the Preservation Hall band when I play, but uh, the band is spread around. I haven't played in three months. <laughs> you haven't played in three months? No, I haven't played since the, uh, you know, since the tragedy. I hadn't really... I picked it up. Oh, about six weeks ago, and I started playing, do you know what it means? And I started crying. So I put it down. How does one cope? I mean, usually when disaster strikes a person or a household, their network of support, their friends, the rest of their family, they're, 
in relatively good shape. But here you have whole families, whole neighborhoods, a whole city that's lost everything almost all at once. How do you cope? Pretty hard to kill off the spirit of New Orleans. And it's in every one of our hearts and souls, everyone who not only who was born here but who has lived here any amount of time, I think that spirit that we have to carry on uh, is like no other place in the whole world. That spirit is going to get us through it, and we just got to keep relying on our natural instincts to get back to what we had. But it's going to come back. Now, I can't tell you the way or who's going to live in it, but it will be back. So how are people you know, and how are you going to bring yourself into the holiday this year? Well, I'm going to start playing my horn again. That's the main thing. Was there a lot of music in your house around holiday time? Mm-hmm. Between my mother and my grandmother, they both played the piano. There was music all the time. Mm-hmm. Not just holiday, all the time. Your favorite holiday tune from that? If you close your eyes and you can hear your grandmother and your mother, what would you be listening to? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And I learned to play it when I was, oh, 12, 13 years old. Just from hearing uh, Grandma play Grandma played it really well. Can I hear it now? On his trumpet? Yeah. I certainly will. I would love to do that. With me has been Dr. Frank Minyard, who for the past 30 years has been the coroner of Orleans Parish in New Orleans. Thank you, sir, so very much. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. And Merry Christmas from New Orleans to everybody listening. Merry, Merry Christmas. Our Christmas time special, Louisiana Longing, was produced by Susan Shepard. Special thanks to Michael Lee of River Road Recorders and Eve Tro and New Orleans. Thanks also to Jeff Town of Echoes. Living on Earth's technical director is Dennis Foley. For more information about our guests, their music, and their stories, go to our webpage, livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. And from all of us here at Living on Earth, happy holidays. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.